Well, good morning, church. How are we doing? It's good to see you guys. Um, Hey, just wanted to let you know, I've actually had several people ask me, so I've been letting everybody know at all three of our services that Bobby is doing well. I was actually already scheduled to preach today, and James was already scheduled to preach last week. And so for those who see three weeks of no Bobby and start to have like a small anxiety attack, he's fine. He's doing well. He's just getting older. But nonetheless, he is healing, and we're super thankful for that. And so uh, with that, I'm excited to spend this time with you this morning. We're going to be wrapping up our series in the book of 1 Corinthians, which we've been in for a while now. And so we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. I was given the option to cover the entire 16th chapter of 1 Corinthians and read through it, and there's a lot of great stuff in there. You know, you've got Paul giving some final instructions that are just really pointed, and then you've got Paul kind of laying out some of his travel plans, how he hopes to come back to Corinth. You've got Paul greeting people by name, um, encouraging people by name. All of that's really great, but as I was praying and considering what we would spend our time covering, I sensed the Lord drawing me back to the first four verses of chapter 16. And and in so doing, I thought, well, how, like, if it's true that last week, Pastor James uh, preached on the one thing nobody wants to talk about, which is death, and I think it's true, I think that's right, nobody likes to talk about that, then it only seems fitting that I would follow suit and teach on the second thing nobody wants to talk about, which is money. And so uh, I am so excited uh, to get to preach about money. I've been a pastor for about six and a half years, all of which have been at this church, and I have successfully managed to avoid preaching on the topic of money and really hoped that I'd make it to year 10 before I even had to like enter that territory. But nonetheless, here we are. So I will say this on the front end, even as this is a sermon on money, more than anything, I hope this is a sermon on spiritual formation. Like I, I want this to be more about your sanctification than it is your your checking account or your savings account or whatever. Like, like what I really hope to do this morning is help you and I, for that matter, consider yet another way that we can grow and change and be shaped to be more like Jesus. Like I, I want to lay before you a practice that we see in 1 Corinthians 16, along with some tangible shifts that we can begin to make even today, that over time, even like long periods of time, will shape us into the type of people that God wants us to be be, the type of people that Christ died so that we would eventually become, and the type of people that even now the Holy Spirit is working inside of us to form us into. And so hear me once again, loud and clear, this sermon is less about money and it is far more about your sanctification and far more about your spiritual formation. Okay. Are we good? So no nasty emails, none of that stuff. All right. Now, on April 9th, 1945, a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed uh, for his involvement in an attempt to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Now, a little backstory on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was born February 4th, 1906 in Germany to a wealthy, influential, and highly academic family. In fact, Bonhoeffer was a brilliant mind, just like his father before him, and followed in his footsteps to be a professor 
at one point in his vocational life. However, eventually Bonhoeffer felt the call to pastoral ministry. And so he followed the Lord's calling in that way. And he became a pastor, served as a pastor for several different congregations over his lifetime in Germany. But as Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich ascended to power, Bonhoeffer became an outspoken opponent of the Nazis' unjust and inhumane treatment and massacre of Jewish people. While Bonhoeffer uh, was a man of means and prominence, he began to watch the infiltration of hellish ideologies influence the German church via the state, and he was provoked to action. And so uh, Bonhoeffer abandoned his life of wealth, of prominence, of accolade, and he began a small underground seminary designed to train and equip pastors in the way of Jesus. And by all accounts, the discipleship, the shared kind of communal life, everything that was happening in this underground seminary was intense, like really, really intense. Now, during this time, a friend of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's uh, from his earlier days in the academy heard of what was going on, what Bonhoeffer was up to, and he was a bit concerned. And so he decided to go out and visit his old friend. And when he arrived, he saw all that was happening. He saw this small community sharing their life together, doing intense discipleship, being trained and equipped in the way of Jesus. And he saw this spiritual zeal that had overtaken Bonhoeffer. And, and he said to his friend, what are you doing? Basically, he had planned to come to where Dietrich, his old friend, was, and he was going to convince him to leave this project behind. I mean, he, it was unbecoming of an academic and, and a man of means or wealth. It was unbecoming of a pacifist to be so consumed with spiritual zeal. And, and so his, his thought was, I'm going to go to my friend and tell him, you need to calm down and you need to come back home and go back to the academy where you belong. This is nuts. Now, in response, Dietrich Bonhoeffer took his old friend on a boat ride. And so they got in a small boat and they traveled across a lake nearby. I didn't write any of these, uh, the names of these locations down because I would have butchered them trying to say them. So they traveled across this small lake that was near this training ground. And when they landed on a small island, Bonhoeffer took his buddy to the top of a hill. And this hill overlooked, on this island, it overlooked one of Adolf Hitler's training camps for young Nazi soldiers. And after spending some time at the top of this hill, Dietrich looked at his old friend and said, this has to be stronger than that. You want me to calm down? I'm not going to. In fact, I can't calm down. Because this has to be stronger than that. His point was, if I'm not, if we are not being formed into the image of Jesus, do you know what the alternative is? It's that. And so this has to be stronger than that. And as the story goes, they climbed down the hillside, they got back in the boat, and they rowed back to shore in complete silence. Now, I'm captivated by Bonhoeffer's words on that hilltop. I'm, I'm captivated by them because of the power and the truth that they contained on that day, but I'm captivated by them as well because of the power and the truth that they still have even today. Like as disciples of Jesus, we need practices that are going to form us into the type of people that reflect the image of Jesus in a countercultural way. Why? Well, because we're all being formed into someone or into something. Like if you were here two weeks ago, you heard me preach on the importance of spiritual formation and surprise, I'm just gonna do it again because I'm a one trick pony and that's all I've got, all right? So 
to revisit the sermon even from two weeks ago. I gave you a definition of spiritual formation that came from Robert Mulholland. And he said that spiritual formation is a process of becoming like Christ for the sake of others. If you were here, hopefully you remember that. It is a process, a lifelong process, in fact, of becoming a different kind of person. And so in that process, every action, every decision, every thought, every word that's spoken, every moment is formative in who we will become because who we are becoming is the cumulative effect of all of those things. And as followers of Jesus, it's the work of the Holy Spirit to use everything in our life to form us into the type of person who will eventually reflect the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is. But we're not static. And the Holy Spirit is not the only person or power that is at work to try and form us. Like one pastor that I listened to this week said that humans are a lot more like sharks in the sense that sharks are always moving. In fact, they can't stop moving or they'll die. (laughs) They need to keep moving to breathe. And he said, we are like sharks in the sense that we are always moving. We're never static. We are always changing. We're always heading towards who we're gonna be. And so the question really isn't, am I moving or am I changing? The question is, who am I becoming and which direction am I moving? And so we're either being formed into the image of Jesus or we're being formed into the image of someone or something else. And what's more is that we often don't even realize the ways that we're being formed. Like we don't recognize the ways that we're being formed over time, not to reflect Jesus, but to reflect something else. And according to the word of God, there's one thing that has the potential to severely deform us or to contribute beautifully to our formation into the image of Christ. And that thing is money. So if there was one sort of overarching message concerning money that we, we receive from the word of God, surprisingly, it's not that money is bad. <laughs> surprisingly, it's not that wealth is bad or that wealth is evil. The message that the Bible, the overarching message about money that the Bible has for us is that money has spiritual power. Like that money is powerful. In fact, This is Ecclesiastes 5.10. It says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Hebrews 13.5. It says, keep your life free from love of money and be be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10, Paul says, but, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Like, like Paul writing to Timothy, this young pastor says, it was the love of money and the allure of wealth that actually caused people to walk away from Jesus. Like I think of the parable Jesus told, the parable of the soils, right? You've got this seed that's scattered on different types of soils in this parable. The seed representing the gospel or the message of the kingdom of God. And then the soils represent different like degrees or or types of human hearts. And in that parable, Jesus says, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it, prov- it proves unfruitful. It just chokes it out. 
I think of the parable, uh, or not the parable, the story of the rich young man who came to Jesus and, and he comes to Jesus asking him, hey, how do I get to participate in the kingdom of God? How do I get to enter into the kingdom? And Jesus, he gives him a list of commandments from the 10 commandments and the young guy says, man, that's easy. Is that all you got? Done. Did it, done it, keep doing it. Let's go, I'm your guy. Let's enter into the kingdom. And then Jesus says, one more thing, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And if you know the story, what does the young man do? He leaves, he walks away and he's sad. He's sorrowful because he had great possessions. Jesus said, one more thing, go sell it all and come follow me. And he said, I just can't do that. You don't know how much I have. This leads me to the final and most pointed teaching of Jesus concerning the influence of money. In Matthew 6, 19 through 21, he says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so money has power, money has influence. It has the ability to to hook us at the point of our deepest desires and our deepest insecurities. And then it pulls us in, it draws us in. Like if we're not mindful of it, the desire for money and wealth hooks us deep within our hearts and then it begins to pull us more and more. And the overwhelming concern of the Bible is not money itself, but it's what your money does to you. Because if we're not careful, we begin to worship the idol of wealth. It becomes the object of our worship so that rather than meditating on the beauty of Jesus, we obsess over our monthly spending and saving. So that rather than scaling back our spending to be a blessing to others, we scale back so that we can spend more later on on that thing that we think we need, that we don't need, but we've wanted for so long and we just convince ourselves, I've earned that. Or we sing the praises rather than singing the praises of Jesus who provides all that we need daily. We sing the praises of men like Dave Ramsey for his financial acumen and guidance to financial freedom. Now, listen to me clearly when I say scaling back to save or buying something new that you've wanted for a long time and you've worked hard for, being thankful for men like Dave Ramsey who are much more wise when it comes to money than I am and have a lot of wisdom to offer in financial freedom. Like all of that stuff is great. There's nothing wrong with it. None of that's bad. Wealth is not bad. They're just not ultimate. Like this They're just not ultimate things. And the litmus test that Jesus lays down is follow your money because it's always going to lead to what you love. Always. So where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Pair that teaching of Jesus with Proverbs 4.23, which in the NIV says, above all else, guard your heart from everything you do flows from it. And so if money has the potential to hook us in the deepest parts of our heart, and and if it's our heart or our desires that guides all that we do, and if who we are becoming is, is a byproduct of what we do, then we must be very, very diligent because if we are not, then our pursuit of or abuse of or love of money will pull us and will consume us until the person we've become is unrecognizable and looks nothing like Jesus. And so briefly, let's look at 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4. It's a short passage, 
But again, I think there's a formative practice for us here. Paul writes, now concerning the collection for the saints as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So Paul is writing in this text to address yet another question that the Corinthians had asked in a previous letter. The specificity and the brevity of his response would indicate that they've already talked. They've already corresponded about this offering. And it would seem that what Paul's doing is actually coordinating a one-time offering from among Gentile churches that he wants to deliver to the church in Jerusalem. And so this this one-time offering, it would have been in addition to, not in place of, but in addition to, to their regular tithes and first fruit offerings that they would bring to the local church. Now, he doesn't explicitly say why uh, he's collecting this in this passage, but using clues found throughout Paul's other letters, we can conclude that there's a pretty large low-income population within the Jerusalem church. And what Paul wants to do is try to alleviate the financial burden that this has put on the church by assisting in the care of these individuals. In Galatians 2.10, we see this where Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia, all of whom are participating in this collection, and he tells them to remember the poor when addressing this collection. Now, additionally, it would seem that there's a secondary motive. So it's not just to alleviate the financial burden in Jerusalem, but the secondary motive is is that given the ongoing tension and confusion regarding the inclusion of the Gentiles into the church or God's redemptive plan, it seems as though Paul wants to like solidify through tangible means the reality that the the church of Jesus is composed of both Jew and Gentile. Like that the inclusion of the Gentiles was not a mistake, that God's plan all along was in fact people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping around the throne of God. That what he says in Ephesians 2 was true, that the wall of hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile has been ripped down in Christ. Or in Ephesians 4, that there's one church, not two churches, one church, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit. And so in Romans 15, Paul, he he explains this a little bit where he says that the Gentiles have become benefactors or beneficiaries of the promises that God made through Israel. Like, so Old Testament, Israel, people of God and, and New Testament, they've been grafted in, right? The Messiah came through the nation of Israel. And so now he's saying, hey, this is a way for the Gentiles who have received blessings that came through Jerusalem or through the Israelites. Now as Gentiles, we get to return the favor. We get to now be a blessing to our Jewish brothers and sisters by collecting an offering and giving it to them. And so he's trying to solidify the unity that exists in the church. And then the final thing we see Paul in this uh, small section do is he instructs the Corinthian church to go about this offering in a systematic way. In verse two, he says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside, store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. In other words, I, I, don't wanna, I don't want there to be pressure. I don't want there to be running around. Like, I don't want there to be like my presence. All of a sudden you guys are emptying your pockets. That's not the point, right? 
I want it to be every single week, he says, set aside a little extra from what you bring home and let that go towards the offering. Now notice what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't specify how much each person, each person or household needs to give. Right? In fact, he seems to indicate that it would be based on how much they brought home that week. And so if you bring home a lot, maybe you give a bigger amount. If you bring home a little, maybe you, you give a little less. Like he, he doesn't give a percentage. He doesn't give a dollar amount. He doesn't do any of that. And I think this is important because in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul addresses this offering. He takes two chapters to, to address the offering that he addresses here in four verses. And in chapter 9, verses 5 through 9, Paul says, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as exaction. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written, he has distributed freely, and he has given to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever." And so Paul's point here is God wants his people to be generous and he wants his people to be glad and he wants them to be joyful and cheerful when they give. Now, how does that happen? Paul would say, well, you look at your resources and then you spend some time seeking the Lord's direction on how to give in order to benefit and bless other people. Like Paul's like, I'm not trying to pry the dollars from your your closed fist. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm presenting a need and then I'm asking that you would seek the Lord's direction. And as he leads out of the abundance of what you've received from him, you give, that's it. There's no dollar amount, no percentage. There's no scale. I'm not giving you that. That is for the Lord to decide. I think, I think this really matters (laughs) because church, I want you to understand like God's not after your stuff. God's not after your stuff. What is he after? He's after your heart. He's after you. And I saw you raise your hand. Yeah, he's after you, right? He wants you. He wants your attention. He wants your devotion. He wants your affection. He wants your love. He doesn't care about your house. He doesn't care about your car. He cares about you. He wants you. But the reality is it's our stuff that that has a way of capturing our heart, doesn't it? And so when God then says, I want you to give it up, it's not just because he, he cares. About, it's not that he wants you just to give it up. It's because in walking in obedience and opening your hands and giving up whatever God says to give up, you actually get to experience more of him, more of the joy and the blessing that comes in walking in obedience. You get to experience his grace and his love. That's what he wants. God, after all, is not greedy. He's benevolent, which means he gives and he gives and he gives. In fact, the basis of Paul's argument in 2 Corinthians 8 is found in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Like Jesus Christ, the son of God, set aside the riches and glory of heaven for a time so that we might become co-heirs with him for all eternity. 
Like this is Paul's point in Philippians 2, that Jesus Christ, the son of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, coming in the likeness of man and dying on the cross. It's Mark 10, 45 from two weeks ago. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he what? He gave, right? He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The point is that God gives. And this is the gospel, isn't it? That God just gives That Jesus Christ, the son of God, gave his life so that through his life, death, and resurrection, anybody and everybody who would come to him in faith would receive forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to God, that they would be called sons and daughters, guaranteed an eternal inheritance as the children of God. It's like when we enter into glory, every blessing that the father intends to to pour out on his son, we get to experience every single one of them. He's going to pour them all out on us because we are in Christ, his sons and his daughters, united to his son. And so it is then through our generosity that we image Christ. And listen, this takes some practice, doesn't it? This takes some work by the power of the spirit and by making choices and decisions to become generous people, doesn't it? Like, I'll just tell you, I I would love a vacation. Vacations cost money, don't they? I I would love, uh, I would love some new shoes. I'd love uh, some new jeans. I'd love some new red wings, some red wing boots. Those things are sharp. Hint, hint, right? Just kidding. Those cost money, right, Josh? They're expensive. Everything's expensive. Everything costs money. And in a culture of excess, in a culture that that elevates wealth and status, in a culture that presents a false story of the good life that says, you want to be happy? You want to flourish? Well, go get more money. You can achieve it. You just got to go get it. No, we need to have counter practices that enable us to resist the push and pull of our culture. Like here's a crazy thing I read a couple of weeks ago um, in one of the books that I was going through. There, there was a psychologist out of Princeton University who found that regardless of where you live, your emotional well-being is as good as it's going to get at $75,000. So what that means is that essentially you have a sort of happiness ceiling and that ceiling is $75,000 annually. So if you make more than that, well, you're not going to be any happier than you were at $75,000. Isn't that shocking? So can money buy happiness? Well, apparently to a certain extent, and then it plateaus. So we need practices that help us become more like Jesus and less like the culture. Because again, we are all being formed. And so what is the practice that we take from 1 Corinthians 16? It's this. It's that we regularly and prayerfully set aside a portion of your excess to meet a need and be a blessing to others. So regularly, prayerfully set aside a portion of your excess to meet a need and be a blessing to others. Again, there's not a number attached to this. There's not a percentage point that you have to hit as the Lord gives and as the Lord leads, you just set aside a portion of excess income as the means to bless others. Now that's simple. And yet that can be a real challenge for some of us, right? Like for some of us, 
We need every single penny just to make it by. That's just the reality of our situation. And as God provides those pennies, we're thinking, thank you, Jesus. I I needed that penny to make rent, to buy food, right? So some of us, that's our situation. While some of us, on the other hand, we need every penny that we can get because we've tied every penny we make to a toy. So we have spent ourselves into a situation where we don't have excess because it's all gone. It's all gone. Regardless of your financial situation, here's what I want. I want you to like literally just kind of take a breath, breathe in and then breathe out. Because guess what? I'm not here to tell you what to do with your money. Just not interested in that. I'm actually here to hopefully help you become more like Jesus. And it just so happens that money has a remarkable influence in that pursuit. So here's what I thought would be helpful. I I thought it'd be helpful to give us some shifts, like some mental shifts, um, ways that we can begin to shift our thinking concerning money so that over time we can become just a more generous people and a people who look more like Jesus. And so here's the first shift. It's from mine to yours. Like Psalm 24, one says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. And Job 41.11 says, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And so there is, the Bible's saying there's only one being in the entirety of the universe who can claim ownership of anything, of everything that exists in the cosmos, and that's God. Like he owns everything. It all belongs to him, all of it, which means you don't own anything. That beautiful house you just bought that you just moved into that you're so excited about, it's not your house. You don't own that. You're a borrower. You're a tenant. You are leasing that house. The car you just bought, you don't own that. Those shoes, the clothes, none of it. You don't own any of it. Your checking account, your savings account, your 401k, it all belongs to God. Every dollar you've ever made and every penny you've ever saved, it all belongs to him. And if everything we own belongs to God, then we should, we should start to reconsider the fact that because I don't own anything and it's all his, I'm just a steward of his resources, which means I should just open my hands up. Just open them up, loosen my grip on my stuff. Shift number two is self-focused to others-focused. Another way to say it would be from oblivious to aware, meaning am I aware of the needs around me? Am I aware of the needs of the people in my church, of the people in my community? Or am I just oblivious to the needs of others because all I'm thinking about is myself and that toy I'm gonna buy? The third shift is greedy to generous. Now, the fourth shift is from excess to simplicity. Now, um, I don't know if anybody else has experienced this phenomenon where you, like, this has happened every time me and my wife have moved, right? We move into a new apartment or uh, more recently into a house and we get in and we're like, look at how much room we've got. Isn't this so nice? We can do exercises. We can run in the hall, like whatever. We don't run. But the point is, look at all the room we've got. And then six months down the road, we're like, where did all that space go? Well, you know where it went? It went under that thing that we bought that we don't need. And then we forgot where it was, so we bought another one, right? That's where the space went. No, it's living not just within our means, but below our means. Like there's so much that we have that we don't need. I would love to know the numbers on how much like, like the, the storage industry makes. I would be so curious to know 
how much they're racking in because of our excess. I was reading a book um, the other day and read about a pastor who began to practice simplicity. And I'm not suggesting you do this unless you feel called to, but uh, he basically was like, man, I just, I'm, I'm, I can feel my heart being tied to my stuff and I want to break loose of that. And so he decided I'm going to get rid of every piece of clothing I own, except for enough to have three outfits. And so literally his closet got rid of all of his clothes, all of his shoes. He's got three outfits, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, he wears one, Tuesday, Thursday, he wears another one, Saturday, he wears another one, and Sunday is you get to build your own adventure. I don't know about you, but that makes me so anxious just thinking about all the laundry and all that kind of stuff. And I know that says more about me, but nonetheless, that's the idea. It's, it's breaking free of the need to just have a bunch of stuff and living beneath even our own means. The fifth is from envy to gratitude. Envy blinds us to the provision of God and it robs us of our joy. And so instead, be thank, being thankful for all that the Lord has provided. And then the final shift is from a consumer to a participant, meaning a participant in the kingdom of God. Like I love what Paul says about the Macedonian church in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Like I love this because Paul's saying, hey, they were afflicted, they were poor, and yet out of the abundance of their joy, they gave generously. In fact, they were begging us to be included in the offering. They're like, hey, we're poor. We got no money, but we're going to, we want to be a part of what God is going to do to bless his people. Like we want in on that. Like that is just convicting. And the American church largely has been deformed to reflect the consumeristic culture, uh, the consumeristic character of our culture, meaning we come, we take, we go home. And when we're displeased, we leave, but that is not the way of Jesus. And that's not the practice of the early church. And so my hope, at least at Huddle Bible, is that we would be a church of participants, that we would be eager, begging, in fact, to be a part of what God is doing to bless his people and advance the kingdom of God. And so I want to end by sharing just briefly two contrasting images with you that I hope illustrate what I'm trying to communicate. When I was in college uh, in Chicago, I had a professor who... Um, her and her husband each week would set aside a small amount of cash that they. Thanks, Siri. Uh, they would set aside a, a small amount of cash each week that they would then take out with them whenever they would go to dinner, to go shopping, just for a walk around the city, whatever it was. And um, like most major cities, Chicago has a large homeless population. And so um, where the homeless folks in Chicago were a little different than maybe in Austin or these other areas is that they wouldn't just like sit back with like cardboard signs uh, asking for money. They would like come at you for money, right? Like they were like, they saw you across the street and they're like, you've got money. And they would call you out and they'd come at you. It was crazy. And it's easy in that environment to just become so hardened to the needs around you. Cause you're like, go away, go away. But they decided we're going to take this small amount of cash, wherever we go, this money that we've saved up, we're going to take it with us. And as we go, we are just going to pray together a simple prayer. God, who do you want us to give this to? And sometimes they'd go out and they'd come home and they wouldn't give the money to anybody. But in most cases, they would walk through the city. They'd come up to, to a homeless person and they would just sense the Holy Spirit prompting them, hey, give it to them. Don't ask questions, just give it to them. 
And so in obedience, they would pull out the cash and they'd say, hey, here you go. The Lord loves you. And then they'd go about their day. Now compare that to what James K. A. Smith calls the consumer gospel. Like in his book, You Are What You Love, he describes the modern shopping mall, which nobody goes to, I get that, but he describes the modern shopping mall as a type of temple. He says each mall is filled with a multitude of chapels and each chapel portrays a version of the good life through images of people who are just a little bit prettier than you, who seem a little bit healthier than you, who look a little happier than you, who possess a confidence that you just haven't felt in years. And these images, they press on our deepest desires and our deepest insecurities securities, and then they hold out for us at 25% off only today, the solution. And he says, as we pause to reflect on some of the icons on the outside of one of the chapels, we are thereby invited to consider what's happening within and invited to enter into the act of worship, more properly invited to taste and see. And then he says that these images begin to bend the needle of our heart. And when such liturgies are distorted, aimed at rival kingdoms, they are pointing us away from our magnetic north in Christ. And we start to live toward a rival understanding of the good life. Now, again, nobody goes to the mall. I get that. But Instagram and Amazon, those Facebook ads that it's like you said, I literally had a kid, a guy I know text me a picture of red wing boots and goes, I've literally never looked at red wings. And I go to church and I've got an ad for red wing boots on his phone. It's insane. All of that stuff is there to do something to you. And so my point is that this has to be stronger than that. It has to be stronger than that. We have to have counter practices as followers of Jesus that resist the pull of consumerist culture and the allure of wealth and that shape us into the image of Christ rather than the image of the culture in which we live. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, that you are a benevolent God, a God who gives and gives and gives to the extent that you would give your only son so that we would be redeemed and reconciled so that in him becoming poor, that we would be made rich, not even financially or monetarily, but that we would be rich in the sense that we have life, life abundance, life eternal in you, King Jesus. So my prayer is that you would help us as your people to become more like you in our generosity and our benevolence, not just for the sake of being kind or being generous, though those are good things, but ultimately, Jesus, we want to be like you. We want to be who we were made to be. We want to be the type of people the Spirit even now is working to form us into. Again, not just for our own good, but for the blessing of others and for the praise of your name. And so we ask that you would help us to to be a people who experience transformation, who are growing and changing each and every day to reflect your image, to reflect your character, and that it would be the practices that we adopt even now that we fail at time and time again, but these practices that we make it a, a priority, a plan to implement now that you would use those Holy Spirit. Help us to become generous and to become participants in your kingdom. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. 
So we're gonna enter in now to a time of communion. Uh, and so if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come on up to the table. Uh, as the band plays, you can move around freely, grab the elements, take them back with you, and we will take them together. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Church, this is the body of Jesus broken for you so that in him you would, would receive an eternal inheritance. So take and eat. And this cup is the blood of Jesus shed, spilled, poured out to cover the sins of many so that by faith in him, we would be called sons and daughters, participants in his kingdom. Take and drink. You know, I was thinking earlier, I was kind of asking myself, why is it that I feel so weird preaching a sermon on money? And, and I thought, well, there's, there's really two reasons it feels super weird for me. One, because uh, it presses on a part of me that is so unlike Jesus. <laughs> like it really presses on a part of my heart that um, if I'm honest, I have withheld, <laughs> that I have tried to keep the spirit of God away as he's knocked, I've ignored the knock and I've run to other doors, right? Um, it's just, it's a part of me that is really underdeveloped. And, and so even this week, it was like, gosh, this is miserable because the spirit was just pressing and pressing and pressing on me saying, open your hands, release your grip. <laughs> but the second reason I think it felt so weird is because like you, Hutto Bible Church, the people of this church, the men, the women, the families, like y'all are so remarkably generous already that it almost feels weird to, to preach a sermon on generosity knowing that we have such a remarkably generous like church family, like like the pastors, your staff, elders, like we are constantly just blown away by uh, just you and your faithfulness and your generosity to our church and to, to what God's doing. And so it feels weird being like, be generous, because I'm like, but I'm talking like this, I'm preaching to the choir in some regard. And, and so my encouragement to you, church, is um, do not grow weary of doing good. Like, it's alluring. <laughs> it's alluring, isn't it? Like it's easy at some point to go, ah, oh, I've given so much. Maybe now it's time to take a little bit. I've earned this. Or uh, it's easy to even lose sight of why we give. Like you set the reoccurring payment, 15 to the first of the month. It takes X amount of dollars out and you don't even think about it. It just happens and you see it on your statement at the end of the year, like whatever. But it's doing something to you. Like you're giving your generosity, your sacrifice, like the spirit of God is using that practice to form you into the image of Jesus. And so my encouragement is 
to a generous church, do not grow weary in doing good because you may not realize the work that the Spirit of God is doing right now in you to make you more like Jesus. And so uh, we, we love you. We're so thankful for you in that regard and, and just want to encourage you to continue all the more in obeying and, and walking faithfully in relationship with Jesus. And so with that church, you are dismissed. Have an amazing Sunday. Grace and peace. And Carvin, two minutes to spare, brother. I don't know where you're at, but... Have a great Sunday.